Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Christelle Guido, talking with us about the repellency of some fungicides to honeybees. In our five-minute management, we'll be talking about how we can protect ourselves from bee stings, and we'll finish the episode with the Stump the Chump segment where Amy reads questions from you, our listeners, to me, and then I do my best to answer them. everyone and welcome to another episode of two bees and a podcast we've got a treat today because we are going to be talking about the impacts of pesticides on honeybees very specifically we are talking about the impacts of fungicides on honeybees a lot of beekeepers out there are worried about how pesticides impact their bees in general but we're looking at the specific class the fungicides and here with us today to discuss that is christelle Gadot, an associate professor and fruit crop entomologist and extension specialist from the Department of Entomology, the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Christelle, thank you so much for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You recently published a paper about the effects of fungicides on pollen foraging by honeybees and cranberry, and we're going to talk all about that, Christelle. But before we do, our listeners really get a kick out of hearing how our guest got into bees and bee research in the first place. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into research with honeybees? Sure, sure. It's my pleasure to be here and I'm happy to share this, uh, how I got into, into this work. So um, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm originally from France. And it's interesting because I was um, working on human physiology and uh, neurobiology. And I got very fascinated by insects. And when I moved to the U.S. Um, to do my Ph.D., I really was going into this thinking I was going to work on um, social insects and ants in particular. And then I ended up at the USDA bee lab um, in Logan, Utah, and started working with solitary bees. So I went from social ants to solitary bees and just got completely fascinated by solitary bees and their behavior and how they orient to find their nest. So it's very different than honeybees, of course. But that's kind of what led me into the bee world. The position I have now is really looking at um, pollination services and pest management and how we can integrate both of those. And most of our um, growers here in Wisconsin use honeybees. And so that's how I ended up um, switching to honeybees because really that's, that's the main pollinators that people are using here. Whereas back in the uh, Pacific Northwest, it was more of the uh, um, solitary bees that were 
try, the people were trying to use them as alternate pollinators to, um, to honeybees. You know, I, one of the things that you said, I think is absolutely critical. You mentioned that you're looking at pollination services and pest management. You know, that is a growing field of research at the moment, right? We need pollination, but bees are being used to pollinate crops, right? That, that also need pest management. And so it's really nice to know that you're out there doing research that is so applicable to beekeepers as well as growers, because it's incredibly important to both groups to be able to address this topic. Is, is this a a passion of yours, something you feel like you fell into, or is it something that you're just amazed at, at the number of research opportunities that are available in this field? Well, that's a great question. So what I bypassed in my little short biography here is that after my PhD with solitary bees, I ended up working in a postdoc where I looked at pest insects. And what I was interested in at the time was the chemical ecology. So how pest insects communicate with the, each other or with their host plant. And the position I got here in Wisconsin was really integrating those two aspects. So the pollination services, which related to a, bit, a little bit of what I did in, during my PhD and the pest insects. So it kind of was the, the best position I could ever hope for because it combined what I did for my PhD and what I did for my postdoc. So it was a match made in heaven that I, I worked on two different <laughs> aspects, the, the bees and the uh, pest management and then have a position that combine both. So speaking of pest management, you know, fungus is considered a pest, yes? So that's something, Correct. yeah. So we use fungicides in the cranberry fields and other agriculture commodities. And I know that in the past, you know, really people were focusing on insecticides um, and, you know, how detrimental that could be to honeybees. But today we're talking about fungicides. So our topic is about repellency of fungicides to honeybees. So what is, first of all, I guess, what does that mean? And then can you tell us a little bit about the process of the fungicide applications and how is that related to honeybees? Sure. So as you mentioned, you know, when we talk about bees, of course, they're insects. So the first thing that um, we are interested in is looking at the impact that when we talk about uh, manage pest management practices, how insecticides can affect insects because bees are insects. And of, of course, insecticides are meant to kill insects. When you talk about fungicides, it's different because they're meant to kill pathogens. So they are used for, um, you know, they can be used for fungi, they can be used for um, like bacteria or things like that, um, microorganisms. And so in the end, we don't think so much uh, about the, the impact that fungicide may have on bees because they're from different kingdoms, right? So you're, we're not thinking about that. But in research, a lot of people have been looking at the impact of fungicides on bees for a long time. And there's a, a, a growing body of research in the last two decades that has been really, really extensive. And so um, when you're talking about pesticides in general, what we tend to think about is really what goes into the toxicity of a pesticide and how toxic is a pesticide. And that's really, there's a metric for that that's called the LD50. That's the lethal dose to kill 50% of the population. And that's calculated for every chemical. But then there's also um, the exposure and how much exposure the insects or, you know, whatever organism we're looking at, it could be mice, it could be, you know, uh, fish or any kind of organism that could be exposed. We're looking at the exposure and how much is being applied at the time where they would be um, present. And so when you look at fungicides, because they have what we call that LD50 is really high compared to insecticides for bees, I'm talking about specifically here. 
So we never thought for a long time that fungicide would have any impact. They have a high LD50 for bees. They are um, not in the same kingdom. So why would they affect um, bees? And so there's there's been a lot more work into this because we learned also at the same time that there are things that kill insects, but there's also things that have sublethal effects. And by that, that could be any range of, of effect that they could have that could be on their behavior or their reproduction or their memory or their orientation. Like there's a lot of impacts that have been documented now on those sublethal effects. And so that's kind of what we were interested in because, because the fact that those, um, those fungicides do not have a high toxicity, growers tend to apply them often at a very critical time, which is bloom time. There's a lot of pathogens that happen around bloom time. And so it's, it's a common thing to do. Growers are very self-aware that insecticide, you have really have to, to spray very few, if any, during bloom. And if you are spraying any, they have to have a very high, low toxicity so that you're not killing the bees. But the fungicide is kind of like, well, it doesn't impact the bees. So why, why shouldn't we spray them at this time when it's the most critical time for cranberry, for example, fruit rots are very big during um, around bloom time, and that's the time where they will apply those fungicides. So that's kind of the idea, is that they don't kill the bees, but they're applied at a time where we don't think they have an impact on bees, and yet there are studies that are now showing that there are impacts, first of all, of the fungicide sublethal effects on bees, but also that there's interactions between insecticides and fungicides that can also increase that toxicity uh, and the impact that they can have on the bees. So, so all of that kind of got together and um, in, in us being interested in looking at, at the fungicides. So Christelle, you and your team specifically were looking at the effects of fungicides during cranberry bloom. So Amy and I are based here in Florida. We have listeners from all around the world. I don't, I don't know that everybody knows exactly how cranberries are grown. I was in the Northeast US at, at one point and watched the, saw the cranberry bogs and how they flood those things out. And when I think about fungicide use in cranberries, it seems like the cranberry bogs a wonderful environment for the growth of, of fungal pathogens because it's wet and you know damp all the time. And so you guys specifically published a paper, we'll make sure and link the paper in the show notes, but you published a paper where you looked how fungicide applications during cranberry bloom affected honeybee foraging behavior. Can you tell us a bit about that study, how you did the work and what you and your team ultimately found? Sure, I'll be happy to do that. So this was work, um, as you can see on the paper, that was led by my postdoc, Benjamin Jaffe, and a technician in my lab, Abby Lois. And so what we were interested in looking at here is, so as you mentioned, in cranberry, um, there's a lot of water, there are pathogens, which actually, interestingly enough, in Wisconsin, we don't have a lot of pathogens. We have some, and we have consistently some uh, pathogens. We even have viruses now that have shown up and, and um, some phytoplasma. So there's different type of pathogens. But for the most part, growers don't spray a lot of fungicides. But as I just mentioned before, when they do spray fungicides, it tends to be at bloom time. That's the best timing for, for managing those pathogens. And one of them that um, it's not one pathogen, it's a, a, a complex of pathogens, but it's a, a fruit rot. So they're dealing with a, a decent amount of fruit rot in some places, more than others, um, as always. And so they apply those different um, fungicides around at bloom time. And so there's two types of fungicides that are being applied. And it's interesting because there's one that's applied by itself, and that's proteoconazole 
um, that's called ProLine, and that's one that they apply uh, by themselves. And then there's also how that came about, I can't tell you the history, but they mix two of them, and that would be Abound and Indar, so that Azoxystrobin and Fembuconazole, those they apply as a combination. And that's really the most common type of uh, fungicide applications that they do. They either do that ProLine or they do the Abound plus Indar. And so we were interested in looking at that because we had observed from actually um, another study that we were seeing uh, very little bees foraging back with pollen when they were uh, some, uh, actually at that time, it was fertilizer, a fish fertilizer that was applied. So we were interested in looking at the impact of those applications during bloom and how that could affect what they're foraging on. Are they really foraging on cranberry or are they foraging on other flowers? And are they decreasing their foraging on cranberry when um, a product is applied? And we didn't look at insecticide, just at the fungicides here. And so what we've been doing for a while with our, our research on honeybees is uh, we use pollen traps. So I'm sure people here are familiar with pollen traps, but we set them up at the entrance of the hive and then we let the bees come in. And for 24 hours at a time, we close the trap, which means that it scrapes off the pollen baskets that are on the bees as they walk into the hive. We only do it for 24 hours at a time because we don't want to deprive them of, of pollen, but we want to be able to collect the pollen that they're bringing back to the nest. And so what we were interested in, in looking at, and all that research is really done on the farm with the growers. It's a very um, intricate collaboration that we have with the growers. And we, we wait for them to apply the fungicide whatever one they were applying. So we knew at least that they were all applying either a bound and indar or proline. And we collected pollen before they applied it. And then again, 24 hours after they applied it. And then again, 48 hours after they applied whatever product they applied. We couldn't go any longer because then they might apply an insecticide or they might apply a fertilizer or something else that could confound the, fact, the, the results. So we really could only go for 48 hours to be consistent with all the marshes that we worked at. And really, when they apply, and it's applied on the whole marsh, and you cannot use different hives on the same marsh. So we only had one hive we looked at at each marsh, and we had originally something like 17 marshes where we did this work. So we were really looking at the marsh level. What are the bees doing when they're applying a, a fungicide as far as what pollen they're collecting? So that was the premise of this study. So in the end, it's a very simple study. We just call in the pollen, uh, pollen baskets. We collect them in that pollen trap for 24 hours. And then we look at them under a microscope. And cranberry is not unique in that sense, but it's, um, it's a vaccinium species and um, in the ericaceae. So it's similar to blueberry in that they have what are called pollen tetrads. So each pollen grain is not really a pollen grain. It's a group of four pollen grains together. It's a tetrad of four pollen grains. So they're very easy to separate from other pollen, pollen grains. And also by color, they have this tan color. It makes it very easy to sort out cranberry versus non-cranberry in the, in the agroecosystems that we have and the landscape we have around that they're pretty characteristic. So we just looked at the pollen and we, what we did is we weighed the amount of pollen that the bees were collecting. And what we found is that whether it was before the application, 24 hours after the application or 48 hours after the application, 
the weight of the pollen was the same. They were still collecting pollen, no problem. There was no difference in the weight of the pollen, the total pollen in, the, in those drawers that were collecting. But when we went and looked in more detail at the pollen itself, what we found is that when proline was applied, there was a shift in what the composition of that pollen and the percentage of pollen 24 hours after application as well as 48 hours after switched from cranberry pollen to non-cranberry pollen. Even though you had the same amount of pollen that was collected, you had much fewer pollen tetrads from cranberry after the fungicides were applied, the proline. And interestingly enough, when we had the Indar plus abound, we did not see that switch. They were still collecting the same proportion of cranberry pollen versus non-cranberry pollen. So that's where the, the repellency for us came into play is that when you apply the, um, the proline, they still collect pollen, but they switched and weren't to non-cranberry flowers. They made up for that by going to non-cranberry flowers. And so that's, that's really the gist of this study. It was very simple, very clear, and, and you know, very simple study in the end. A lot of work, uh, my postdoc would argue, but, um, but still really simple way of looking at it. And so what we have is this repellency that was still holding true after 48 hours. They did not recover yet from um, the proline, but we couldn't go any further because then some marshes might be spraying and then we couldn't have that, say, 72 hours or 86 hours, something like that to follow up with. That's so interesting. So is there, you know, what is the reason for that? I mean, why was it, why did that happen with one one chemical, but not the other mixture of chemicals? It's a very good question. And unfortunately, I don't have the answer to that. So we can speculate on how that could be. There's different, um, you know, there are different compounds. And that's the main one that I I think is at play here. But there's also the fact that um, those are done at different application rates. And so there could be different concentrations that are present. Though, if you look at it this way, it seems like we would have potentially more in the abound plus indar than we do with the proline uh, that is applied because you have two of those that are together and there's a little bit more of that that's being applied. <clears throat> but in, in the concentration per se, it's very similar. So what it could be, I, I don't have an answer. We didn't go into the, the follow-up of knowing why that could be. There's you know different things that you can think about, um, the different mode of actions, the, the what, what those active ingredients are. Is there any kind of, you know, smell to it in a way, right? Is there something in there that smells different to a bee? I, we don't know. We didn't go into the explanation of that yet. So that's something we're really interested in looking at, but um, haven't done yet. So a couple of things come to mind, Christelle, when you mentioned that. Number one, you know, I'm not claiming that this particular fungicide is is a problem for bees. Maybe it doesn't impact bees at all. But if something is going to be a problem, you almost want it to be a repellent, right? So the bees will stay away from it during the time it's applied. But on the other hand, if growers are applying a fungicide during bloom that repels honeybees, you could see for growers where that would be a problem for them because that's when they need the bees on the flowers, right? So um, it's it's an interesting paradigm that you have going on here during during this uh, interaction between the bees and the fungicides. You're totally right, Jamie, and that's exactly what what happens when you work at the intersection of pest and pollinator management, right? When you integrate both, you always are you know 
at those trade-offs. What is when is it beneficial to both? When do we get to have you know something that's going to be good for the bees and for the pests? And and how do we approach that, right? And that's a tricky one when you're talking. You know, you're not wearing the same hat when you're talking to beekeepers than when you're talking to growers. Yet we all are working for the common good, right? We all are going in that direction of let's do pest management, grow a crop as sustainably and uh, environmentally sound ways, but yet getting, you know, getting that management and protecting the bees. And, and you could talk to any growers and everybody it has the, the well-being of the bees at the core of their, of their time when they're, they have bloom because they need those bees to pollinate their flowers. So you're totally right. And, and this one is actually, you know, you can spin it whichever way you want. You can spin it in a way and saying, these are affecting bees in a way we don't know, but they're affecting bees because they're switching. They're not going to those flowers. So maybe it's, a, you know, whatever is, could be negative to them, they're avoiding. So we're protecting the bees by having a chemical that is somewhat, you know, I'm, I'm going to use the term scented in a way that they're avoiding it. But at the same time, then they're not pollinating those flowers. And 48 hours during full bloom is a long time when you're thinking about bees avoiding. And you're talking about, you know, two to three hives per acre and marshes that can be 100, 200, 300 acres. So that's a lot of bees out there. So yeah, having having lost at least 48 hours of your pollination services because you applied that proline was really puzzling to the growers. And so I think that several of them, the thing is that I don't get those phone calls. They have consultants. So they're talking to the consultants, but I heard from the consultants that they were, you know, thinking about switching to a bound and indar instead of proline, even though proline is very effective at controlling their, their pathogens there. So it is, it is interesting and it's, you know, it makes makes it fun sometimes um, when you show like you're killing the bees. That's not as fun to tell that to the growers. Um, but in this case, it's, you know, it's positive that the bees are repelled. But then how do we mitigate that lack of pollination services that we're trying to get during that time? So I'm also interested in, you know, what you suggest as far as future research goes, because it seems like, you know, this is a very... You know, of course, we were talking about how there's a lot of research that can happen and, and come from this. But I think the one thing that I think about sometimes is when I'm speaking to either growers or beekeepers, they're worried about, um, you know, like tank contamination or the mixture between those insecticides and fungicides. So is that something that, you know, has been looked at before? Oh, there's been some research, um, I think even in Cranberry, where people looked at how the impact of two pesticides, insecticide and fungicide, can have what we call synergistic effect. And an insecticide that might not be toxic can become more toxic to bees in the presence of a, of a tank mix, like you're talking about, when you have a fungicide as well. So that's something that um, growers are very, I mean, I don't know, I've told them many times, so I'm hoping they're very aware of, but it's, you know, it's one of those questions that people always want to extrapolate. How would that happen in another crop? But as soon as you go to another crop, you're using different, not necessarily different active ingredients, but it might be a different product with the same active ingredient. The timing might be different. The concentration might be different. The rate of the pesticide might be different. So everything is so different that it's really different in every crop you're going to go into. So that's where, you know, it's it, it gets to... 
people get to do more of the lab research because you can kind of try to translate that to what would happen in other cropping systems. But there's there's a lot of research on, on, on those different chemicals, but each one is different. Each active ingredient is going to have a different impact. And so one thing that we could think about as far as future research would be potentially something like that proboscis extension response, right? Would you have something like that with that proline? Is that repellency due to the fact that the bees are avert to that chemical, that there's something in there that's, you know, like I mentioned the scent, but I mean, really, it's not necessarily a scent, but something that they detect, gustative receptors that they are able to detect that we could do in the lab and really try to get to the answer of what, what is going on with that. But that's, you know, that's always the same. When you go to the lab or to the field, you get different responses. So how do you translate that after? Actually, one of the cool things about your project is you guys really went straight to the field. And so you're yeah. seeing a really uh, realistic, right, uh, response that bees are giving to you in the field, which I think is incredibly useful to beekeepers, which, which segues kind of to my next question is ultimately, and I know, you know, beekeepers are always wanting us to do one study and be able to make huge pronouncements based on this study and radically change the beekeeping management paradigm out there. But so re realistically, that's not the case, right? But but what do you think are some take-home messages from your study that beekeepers can use directly? What are some things that you see benefiting beekeepers coming from this work and some of your other work? I, the main the main thing I would say is that the, the relationship between the beekeepers and the growers is essential. And really having those conversations and those, um, you know, like I told the cranberry growers, and I could, I could send you a, um, a link to that. I talked to the cranberry growers, I talked to the beekeepers, and we put together uh, best pollination practices for cranberry. And in there, we also have like sample contracts. And I'm not talking about a contract that would be binding by law, you know, just a contract between beekeepers and, and growers to really have that conversation, to really know what's going on, to really be informed of what's being applied, what kind of bees are you getting on your marsh, how, when do they show up, when do they leave, you know, all those kind of practical aspects, because that relationship is essential for both parties. And so my main thing would be that continuing to foster those relationships between the beekeepers and the growers so that beekeepers know what's being applied during bloom and, and growers know what, what bees they're getting um, is going to be essential in making those bees be thriving within the crop that they're, they're being um, delivered to. And so I think that having those conversations on what fungicides are you applying um, during bloom? You know, are there any pesticides that are applied during bloom? How do you try to mitigate, you know, like by, do you spray at night if you have to spray something or, you know, th all those kind of practices that we know and growers know about, making sure that those are being, uh, are being used directly from the study we did. I think growers could definitely, uh, beekeepers, I'm sorry, could definitely ask growers, what fungicide are you applying? Are you applying proline or are you applying the other uh, mix of insect uh, fungicide, I'm sorry. You know, those kind of questions to be more informed about what products are being applied and what, you know, how satisfied are our growers with those products that they're applying and, and the impact they may have on the bees, right? And I think the, the growers should spend time looking 
in their farm, and I think they do, I'm not saying they don't, but some might not, but go in the beds and look at the bees, because I would suspect that something like we documented, you could see right after you apply that proline that there's fewer bees out there. If we have such a decrease, it was a 40 something percent decrease, you would have fewer bees visiting flowers. So I think those kind of, um, you know, recommendations and having those, those great relationships and fostering them even more would be very beneficial. Absolutely. And you are an extension specialist, right? So do you yeah. focus primarily on, do you split it between growers and beekeepers or do you have, you know, what does your program look like? And is there anything else that you'd like to, um, you know, talk to us about or let our audience know about your program? Well, that's a great question. I work primarily with commercial growers. So I'm, I'm really, that's my position is working with uh, fruit growers. Um, I've worked with beekeepers, but from the standpoint of um, at this time, that doesn't mean that's not going to change. At this time, it was when we put those pollination practices together. I really wanted to have everybody at the table so that we could all talk together about how best to, um, to manage those those bees when they're on the farm. So we had beekeepers at the table, we had growers, etc. I haven't worked directly with beekeepers. I've spoken with them, but I haven't worked directly with them. I think that there's a lot to, um, to be done to look at with um, what, what are the bees that are coming into cranberry. There's a lot of um, thinking out there that the bees that are going into cranberries are maybe not doing as well when they come out of cranberries. And I'm not convinced about that. And so I think that that would be the kind of study that I, uh, I would be interested in looking at because I don't think that's true. I think I've talked to enough beekeepers that say that's not true. So those are the kind of questions that I'm interested in looking at. Um, but it, the focus really is primarily on, on the crop we're go- growing. And I don't know if people know that, but um, Wisconsin produces about 60% of the world's cranberry. So we are a major leader in, in cranberry production in the world. I don't think I knew that. So I thank didn't you. know that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Christelle, thank you so much for the important work that you do. I really appreciate you taking some time to share about your research and some other perspectives with our listeners here on Two Bees in a Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated it. And thank you, Jamie and Amy, for, for inviting me and for the, the great conversation. Thanks. Everyone, that was Dr. Christelle Widow, an associate professor at Fruit Crop Entomologist and Extension Specialist for the Department of Entomology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We'll make sure and link to her faculty profile as well as some other documents that we referenced in the show notes so that you'll be able to follow up and look at more information on this topic. Have questions or comments? Don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at UF Honeybee Lab. For the past couple of five-minute managements, five-minute management. We have been talking about sting management. So the first one we were talking about how stings work. The second one we discussed how our body responds to stings. And so in this third five minute management, we are going to wrap it up and actually discuss how to protect yourself from stings. So Jamie, I'm going to go ahead and start the timer and you have five minutes to discuss how to protect yourself from stings. I feel like Amy, I can almost guarantee that it will not take me five minutes because this is the easiest one to point out to folks. 
the best way to protect yourself against things is to wear what, what we call in the business personal protective equipment, which of course beekeepers know as veils, bee suits, gloves, etc. So there is often a macho image associated with, you know, the longer you keep bees, maybe the less you wear with gloves and bee suits. You can wear shorts and t-shirts. And I know a lot of folks who brag about not using smokers or not wearing veils. But I would suggest to you that you need to wear every bit of personal protective equipment that makes you comfortable working around bees. So the first thing regarding personal protective equipment is a veil. I never work colonies without a veil. I don't care how wimpy it may or may not make me look. I know a lot of people feel like you, you need to work without a veil, but I just do not like being stung around the face, the eyes, things like that. So I always wear a veil when working bees. I strongly recommend that beekeepers wear veils when they're in apiaries. Secondly, bee suits. Bee suits are designed to cover your whole body, your arms, your legs, your torso, et cetera. And bee suits are really good at protecting your whole body from getting stung. Of course, the counter point there is that bee suits are incredibly hot. So probably the second piece of equipment that beekeepers tend to shed is the bee suit. And they, they will often wear a jacket, right? But, but I will always tell folks, if stings are an issue for you, if you don't like stings and you don't tolerate them well, you need to consider wearing a full suit or at least um, pants and a bee suit jacket because that's very useful as well. Gloves are another piece of personal protective equipment that you should consider wearing. Of course, the gloves go over your hands and they run up your forearms almost to your elbows. Gloves are really good at protecting your hands. Of course, you lose a lot of dexterity when you're wearing gloves. It's hard to you know, hold the queen or to remove frames. And gloves, though, are probably the first piece of equipment that people will remove as they get comfortable with bees. I, again, I don't care if you wear gloves your whole beekeeping life. Whatever you are comfortable doing to minimize the impact of stings on you is perfectly okay. And then, of course, there are some other basic things that folks like to do. Wear boots rather than flip-flops or sandals or something like that. That way you're protecting your feet. And then when you think about gloves and boots, you'll know that there's almost always entry points through the top of the boots or through the, the end of the gloves. A lot of folks will buy Velcro straps that they can strap those openings close around the top of their gloves and the top of their boots. So all of that is a really good way of protecting your body from bee stings. I mean, that's what bee suits, gloves, and veils are designed to do. And just FYI, the veils that zip to the suits or jackets are probably better than those that tie to the suits or jackets because bees can get underneath the drawstrings on the tie veil. So if stings around the head and neck area really worry you, you might consider using a zipper veil that zips to the bee suit. Last two pieces of, of advice I have regarding minimizing sting have nothing to do with personal protective equipment with regard to suits, et cetera, but instead has to deal with do with how you keep bees. First, I always recommend that beekeepers use a smoker. Smokers are designed to help keep bees calm while you're working them. That's what smoke does. I know a lot of folks who brag about not using smoke, but I think not having a smoker lit when you're working bees is, is careless in many ways because there are times where bee colonies can respond quite defensively and you have to be ready to use smoke to calm them. And then the final behavioral trait I'll tell folks is just work colonies calmly. No sudden movements, no jerky motions, no dropping boxes or dropping frames, just work smoothly, methodically, and calmly, and this usually minimizes bee defensive responses.
All right. You actually did it. You got it within five minutes. Good there job. you go. I knew I could do it. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, there's nothing worse than having a bee in your veil. It's it's one of the worst things to me, I think, when it comes well, to beekeeping sometimes. It's so funny you mentioned that. So, so I use the drawstring veil. I've done it yeah. my whole life, but I get bees in my veils, you know, quite a few times of the year. I usually just close my eyes just to make sure I don't get stung on the eye. And I gently remove my veil, release the bee and put the veil back on. But a lot of people can't handle that. If they get a bee in their veil, off goes the veil, off goes the <laughs> bee suit, off goes the shirt, off goes the pants. You know, people response to a bee getting inside of something is usually pretty fun to watch. But, but again, you know, Amy, all of this is designed to protect us from getting stung. You know, st stings are our reality. You know, I've been stung tens of thousands of times, but, but you can still get stung. Even, even with that background, you can get stung in a manner mm -hmm. that could be life-threatening. So you really have to be careful. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. Welcome back to the question and answer time. Jamie, I've got three questions for you. I will do my best to <laughs> read them and summarize them. <laughs> All right. I, I will do my best to answer them. <laughs> Great. Okay. So the first question, actually, it's funny. I was speaking to one of my friends who is a beekeeper in Missouri, and she was talking to me about how she didn't even know that being honey bound in a colony was a thing. And so coincidentally, we had an email that came that was also asking about honey bound frames. And so this person has a hive that has all honey, you know, all the frames have honey, full frames of bee bread and nectar, but there's not a place for the queen to lay. And so this person had no issues with moving frames around and they, they did switch some stuff out, but is this common is being honey bound a thing? And what do you do about it? It is absolutely a thing. And I've seen it quite a lot, uh, even in my own operation. So I, I've never read a scientific explanation for it, but the way that I've kind of always treated it, and I'm always, it's always dangerous because, you know, I'm kind of walking that line between science and just anecdote, but the way that I've always seen it is that oftentimes, or at least occasionally, the amount of nectar coming in can outpace the space available to store it. And in those cases, the bees will actually store that nectar in empty cells in the brood nest. And if honey's, if nectar's just coming in and coming in and coming in and coming in, your entire brood nest can be absolutely plugged with honey. The, the term for it is just what you said, Amy. It's called honey bound. They, there's now no place for the queen to lay eggs. So a lot of folks deal with this by rotating out some of those frames from the brood nest and rotating in some pulled combs that are empty. So the queen now has a place to lay. Now that begs the question, just because you're putting in empty space doesn't mean you solve the problem. If the queen's not laying quickly, then they can make those four or five or six frames honey bound mm -hmm. as well. So, you know, it, it might be best done by adding an empty super right above the brood nest, as well as rotating in some empty combs into the brood nest. So hopefully some of that new nectar will go into that empty super and still leave those empty combs in the brood nest available for the queen to lay. A lot of beekeepers, and that's if you use a standard single deep brood nest 
with honey supers above it. A lot of folks will use things like double deeps as their standard brood nest. Two deep boxes, their brood box. And what they'll see is the queen tends to lay in the lowermost box, and that box is the one that gets honey bound. So how they'll deal with it is they'll just often swap places between the two boxes. The one that's on top that has more empty comb will go to the bottom. The one that's honey bound will move to the top, and you'll make sure and find your queen and put her in that bottom box so that she has a lot more empty cells. But you know, this always happened to me that when, when I lived in Georgia, we, we would always move bees to the mountains to try to make sourwood honey. And sourwood blooms in late June, July, early July, which is a time of the year the bees otherwise aren't making a lot of honey. And so my colonies would get honey bound a lot. I'd take these strong hives up to the mountains, think everything was going to be okay. And then when I'd go check on them, I had all that sourwood honey stored in the brew box, really kind of inaccessible to me. So it is a pain when it happens. And, and the, the ways around it or ways to try to mitigate is to provide space in the brood bo uh, box manually by adding some pulled combs that are empty and perhaps adding an empty super or two to those hives so that hopefully new nectar coming in will go there. Don't some people keep bees where they actually do the opposite, where they want the queen to lay in the upper box? You know, it can happen, but what yeah. happens is a lot of folks don't use queen excluders. And so over time, the mm -hmm. queen might just migrate up and, and have brood up there. So that can certainly happen. So that's one of the reasons I like to use excluders, but everybody's different, you know, on that standpoint. But certainly if you don't use excluders, the queens can technically be in any box she wants to be in laying eggs anywhere she wants to lay eggs. So, yep, that's fair. All right. So for the second question that we have, um, I'm going to try to do my best to summarize this. So I apologize to whoever emailed us and I totally butchered your question, but this person had a hive that they split too heavily and they did three splits in the spring and noticed that it was queenless for over 28 days. So they ended up adding a new queen a couple of weeks ago and the queenless hive, well, basically one of the colonies had killed the new queen. And so this colony, this person would probably consider rogue. They weren't making any honey. They were basically just bearding at the front of the hive. And so they took that colony and they moved it um, further away from the entire apiary. And so I guess those bees they think are going back to the original hives. And so what's, what's going on and what do you think is happening here? Yeah. So I've, I've said it maybe once, I've said it a thousand times in this podcast, biology is incredibly messy. And sometimes bees even on their own best efforts simply failed to requeen themselves so it looks like the background story here is that they had a really strong colony that they split into three splits and, and i take it from the, the the way the questions asked that the three splits are doing fine that it's the parent colony that failed to requeen itself and they put a queen in there you know a couple you know a week or two after that and they killed that queen. Well, they could have killed that queen because maybe they have successfully requeened themselves. And now that queen has to go on a mating flight, which the whole process can take, you know, if, if you if you count from the time you dequeen that hive to the time they have a mated and laying queen can take up to a month. So the questioner's uh, uh, time period about this colony going rogue is still within the month that it may take them to produce a new queen for her to mate and start laying eggs. But let's assume for a second that, in fact, they did fail to requeen themselves. And for whatever weird reason, they released that new queen that they gave them and killed her. So the colony then has become hopelessly queenless. And what they've done is they've taken that colony after reading uh, in the books, carried it, you know, 200 feet away, dumped out all the bees in hopes that the bees would just, you know, fly back 
to these other hives. And what they've noticed is that some are going to the other hives in the apiary, but more so they're congregating at the old nest site. And so what I always tell folks is rather than shaking bees, you can just take frames of bees or whole supers of those bees and just combine them instantly with your weaker hives or weaker colonies in the apiary. So imagine for a second that this parental colony that was split was composed of two boxes, a brood box full of bees and a medium super full of bees. I would have just taken that medium super full of bees and put it directly on a weak colony in the apiary. I then would have taken that deep box full of bees and put it on a second colony in the apiary. And now I would have done away with my queenless colony. Now you've got the issue though of the bees still might fly back to their original nest site. So what I do is two different things here potentially. Either I pick the weakest colony in the apiary and move to that old nest site so that they can be the one to pick up the straggler bees from the first hive, or I move absolutely everything related to that original hive from that spot. The, the listener mentioned that there were still cinder blocks there. There were still whatever there. You've got to remove all appearances of, their, of the fact that there used to be a hive there. All cinder blocks have to go, all stand. Whatever was there that the hive, on which the hive was sitting, it has to go. And then eventually those bees will have nowhere to land and they will you know, combine with the other hives in the apiary. So it wasn't really necessary to go shake them 200 feet away. You could have just moved the boxes directly to other hives in the apiary, completely disassembled the stand so there's nothing there for the old bees to land on and it would have sorted itself out in about you know two to two to twelve hours probably that's fair if you let's say you had all the time in the world would you be able to put just an empty box there and then collect them and dump them into another colony you can but you're going to run back into the same problem right if you dump them yeah. into another colony you might get some drift back tomorrow and so but if you have all the time in the world you could do this daily right until it stops <laughs> yeah. happening and, and, and it would it would help if you elect to do this, it would help to put a frame of something in that empty hive box so that the bees that fly in there would have something to land on, a frame of honey, a frame of brood, something that they can land on. And so then you move that frame with the straggler bees to a new hive, preferably late, late, late in the day. So they're less likely to drift back to their original hive stand. Awesome. Okay. So our third question, this is a curiosity question. Why are there different locations on the frame for the different kinds of queen cells? Is there any reason for this? I mean, what, where's, where's the swarm cell and then the supersedure cell? Yeah, those are interesting questions. I don't know that I've ever had that asked. I always kind of teach that just like, oh, this is stuff that we all just know. because yes, it's it what is we know. what it is. Yeah. But, but it, it is one of those things. It's what it is. And the truth is, is I don't know the biological reason for it, but I can explain to you kind of the way that I teach on this concept. So the listener is asking about two types of queen cells, one of those being swarm cells, the other being supersedure cells. And from the bees perspective, you know, they don't call them that, right? They're just all cells in which they're trying to make new queens. Swarming is a planned event. The bees want to swarm they begin making new queens in advance of the swarm season. So they will construct queen cups. An egg will be uh, in those queen cups. They will feed the larvae that emerges from that egg and they will grow those things out into queen cells that since they are produced for the purpose of making a new queen during a swarm, we call them swarm cells. These cells tend to occur on the perimeter of the comb. 
So you'll see them on the edges of the frame. They are planned events. So bees have time to make them. They're on the edges of the frame. Now, supersedure cells are responses to an emergency. It is a bee colony's way of replacing a bad queen or in an emergency situation, creating a queen when no queen is there at all. Maybe the queen's died, maybe you pinched or whatever, there's no queen. So in this circumstance, the bee has to make an emergency queen. Either they're replacing a bad one or replacing a missing one. So those bees have to go to the youngest available female larvae to begin pushing them in the direction of becoming a queen. Well, those female larvae were originally um, produced from eggs that were laid in worker size cells. So the intent of those larvae deposited into those cells were as eggs were to become, was to become workers. They were supposed to be workers, but now the bees need a queen. So they go to the comb where the workers are being produced and they use the youngest available females to try to push them in the direction of becoming a queen. So as a result, supersedure or emergency queen cells tend to occur on the face of the comb because that's where they have to go get bees. You could almost argue that if bees did it the way they, quote, wanted to all the time, they would start them in queen cups around the perimeter of the comb and pour a lot of attention into them and make these big old fat queen cells that lead to big old fat queens. Maybe that's the way it normally is done. But in response to emergency, they have to go with what's available and what's available is already somewhere in a worker bee cell that they now have to make a queen. And so those tend to be on the face of the comb. So how we usually explain it is swarm cells usually are around the edges of the frame, whereas supersedure cells usually are on the face of the comb. And again, there are exceptions to both rules, but that is the generality associated with both types of queen cells. Like I said, from a bee's perspective, it's just a cell in what your queen's developing. Mm -hmm. We as beekeepers tend to assign them two different uh, names based on what we think bees are trying to accomplish by the production of that queen, either swarming or replacing a problem. All right. Well, those were really great questions. Thank you everyone so much for submitting your questions and do not forget to send us an email with your questions, honeybee at ifis.ufl.edu or find us on social media, our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at UF Honeybee. Hi everyone. Thanks for listening today. We'd like to give an extra special thank you to our podcast coordinator, Megan Winfrey, and to our audio engineer, James Weaver. Without their hard work, two bees in a podcast would not be possible. For more information and additional resources for today's episode, don't forget to visit the UF IFAS Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory's website, ufhoneybee.com. Do you have questions you won't answer it on air? If so, email them to honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. While there, don't forget to follow us. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast.